This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 357. At any given moment, we're susceptible to bias thinking, and some of it helps us navigate the world, and some of it we need to examine because it could be flawed, right? It could be problematic. It could be missing some nuance. Hey, thanks for finding me and this podcast. I'm so glad you listen. My name is Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast. It's a podcast I created to impact your personal and professional growth and help you understand the power of consistent and intentional reading and the impact that that habit, that simple habit, can have on your life and your career. Each week, we're joined by an author to chat about their latest book and their unique insights on things like personal and professional growth, leadership, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, culture, and the like. Today, you and I are being joined by author Pamela Fuller as we dive into her new book, The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. I'll be asking Pamela to expound upon many of her ideas, including the idea that to be human is to have bias. The reality that unconscious bias is something we'll need to continually manage and address. We'll dig into the various zones of her employer, Franklin Covey's performance model, and much, much more. Now, according to the experts at Franklin Covey, your workplace can achieve its highest performance rate once you start to overcome your biases and allow your employees to be whole people. By recognizing bias, emphasizing empathy and curiosity, and and making true understanding a priority in the workplace, we can unlock the potential of every person that we encounter. Before we bring on Pamela, I wanted to let you know that I've got my own book coming out later this year to help you cultivate the habit of intentional and consistent reading. It's called Read to Lead, the simple habit that expands your influence and boosts your career. It's even available for pre-order right now. You can go to Amazon and search Read to Lead or simply go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. In the weeks and months leading up to the book's release, I thought I'd share with you the occasional endorsement that's come in from those who have read an early version of the manuscript. Uh, this endorsement comes from New York Times bestselling author and founder of Leader Books, Michael Hyatt, who himself has been a guest on this very show a couple of times. He says, if you have the nagging feeling that you should read more, but can't seem to do it, this is the book for you. Read to Lead provides research-backed motivation to become a reader, and it gives you the practical tips and techniques you need to get the most out of every book you choose, which in turn makes reading extremely valuable and enjoyable. I hope you'll consider pre-ordering the book now. Again, to do that, you can go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. Pamela Fuller is Franklin Covey's chief thought leader on inclusion and bias and one of the firm's top global sales leaders. Uh, she began her career in nonprofit fundraising and advocacy. And after earning her MBA, she served as a diversity analyst at the U.S. Department of Defense. Her new book, co-written with Mark Murphy and Ann Chow, is called The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. I'm excited to welcome her here. Pamela, thank you for being here and being a part of the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, I was uh, immediately grabbed by the first sentence in the introduction, and I'd love for you to expound on uh, actually the first couple of sentences. To be human is to have bias. 
if you were to say, I don't have bias, you'd be saying your brain isn't functioning properly. Yeah, I think that we often think of bias as something that is inherently negative and mm. we feel defensive when someone brings up bias. We think, well, no, I need to defend myself and tell them I, I don't have bias. I have very fair <laughs> you know, perspectives and views. But if we're saying we don't have bias, we're saying our brain isn't functioning properly because in any given moment, we are taking in 11 billion bits of information and our brain can only actively process 40 of those bits of information. So there's a huge gap there between sort of what's coming into the supercomputer of our brain and what we can actually focus on and process. And the way that our brain handles the gap is through this automatic programming within our brain, this automatic wiring mm. that sort of sorts and filters and prioritizes. And all of that is bias, right? Those cognitive shortcuts in our brain that really help us navigate the world is bias. Mm. They are preferences and learned behaviors and things that come from our experience experiences, sort of the combination of nature and nurture, if you will. And so if you say you don't have them, you're saying that your brain isn't functioning properly because it's really an integral part of how humans navigate the world. Yeah, we make a mistake, as you say in your book, when we relegate it to uh, ill-intentioned or morally flawed people, right? Absolutely. So it's, you know, it's not something that's lesser than it's actually one of the more amazing things that <laughs> all of our brains can do. Yeah. Well, uh, speak to the reality that unconscious bias is not something that we actually manage to conquer forever, but, but something we have to continually uh, manage and address. We don't just once and for all fix it, so to speak. You know, as we navigate the world, we come to realizations, things happen, right? There were the, the global protests around racial injustice and so much sort of talk and media and social media conversation around realizations that people came to around this issue. Like, oh my goodness, there is bias around race or I, I realized that I that this is how I react uh, with black and brown colleagues or in this circumstance, or I've observed this bit of injustice or this unfair thing. And we sort of come to these realizations as things happen, right? So it's not that you would read the book or explore bias and, and come out of it with a list of your biases mm -hmm. and sort of put it in your pocket and work on that, right? It's that you'll encounter new circumstances and new mm -hmm. situations and new people. And at any given moment, we're susceptible to bias thinking. And some of it helps us navigate the world. And some of it we need to examine because it could be flawed, right? Or it could be problematic. It could be, we could be missing some nuance or some of the reality of the circumstance. What if someone says, well, there are times when I lead toward bias unconsciously or not because it has positive effects? When we say bias, our biases have negative and positive consequences. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we have a bias towards, if you think about sort of organizational structure, right, there's a bias towards collaborative thinking or a bias towards consensus building, a bias towards engagement or uh, more flat organizations where people have the opportunity to be entrepreneurial and rather independent or on the sort of other side of that, we have a bias towards micromanagement or, you know, only top down ideas are the ones that work, or <laughs> these kinds of things. Right. And so our our biases can swing in multiple directions and sometimes it's good. And I think the goal in this conversation is to examine the repercussions. Right. That yeah. we have biases and sometimes they serve us and the people around us. Sometimes they enhance possibilities and potential and sometimes they don't. And the security of being able to articulate whether the bias has positive or negative consequence, I think, is the power. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Because when we can recognize that it might be negative, we can do something different. And when we can recognize that it's positive, we can lean into that more. Pamela, share a bit, if you would, about specifically the the, the Franklin Covey uh, performance model that, that informs much of, of the book. It's such a foundational component of our work to really recognize that our biases do not have value on their face, but they do impact our behavior and that behavior has a consequence. And so we present this performance model. It's a three-part model. It looks a bit like an odometer, if you will. Mm. And on one side is what we call the high-performance zone, where people feel respected, included, and valued, right? And that is the goal, that Mm. everyone in an organization or everyone we're engaging with, even in our personal lives, is in this high-performance zone where they feel like they can be their full selves, they feel a sense of belonging, and they feel that they are valued. To the left of that in our model, we have what we call the limiting zone, where people feel ignored or tolerated. And for a long time, the diversity and inclusion space touted tolerance, right? The goal was that we would sort of put up with one another. (laughs) But you can tell when you're being put up with. You can tell when people aren't listening to you. You can tell when your opinion is not desired, right? When Mm. people don't seek out your opinion. And when you're in that place, you feel marginalized and you don't really care to perform at your best and you're unable to do so because you're spending that time and energy really thinking about or feeling marginalized or sort of lacking this sense of belonging that is one of our core human needs. And then to the far side of the model, to the far left, if you will, if you can sort of picture it, is what we call the damaging zone. And this is really where people feel slighted, where microaggressions live, where Mm. people sort of suffer everyday injustices based on some facet of their identity, everything from someone consistently mispronouncing or forgetting your name to actual like disparate treatment in a circumstance based on some part of your identity and harassment and abuse. Right. Mm. And so Our goal with this model is to move away from this instinctual sense of defensiveness around our bias and move more towards some critical thinking about what the impact of our biases might be. And does my bias serve me and the people around me in the circumstances that have me and everyone else in a high performance zone or being able to recognize does someone else's behavior have me in the limited or damaging zone? Am I feeling marginalized or triggered in some way by what's happening? And if so, then how do I use the rest of the skills in the book to you know, partner and really get to high performance? Something I appreciated early on in the book was the transparency you showed in sharing how you initially responded to someone you had just hired, I believe, who then let you know that they were going to need to take maternity leave pretty, pretty soon. So we were hiring for a position, one of those open positions we were sort of desperate to fill. And we, you know, it took a little bit of time to get approval to fill the position. And we were just under duress in lots of ways. And I, we selected this candidate, a young woman who had the experience that I was looking for and came across really sharp in the interview. And so we offer her the job and she says, absolutely. So excited to work for Franklin Covey. Also, what is your maternity leave policy? I'm pregnant. And my heart just sank. I was like, no, you can't be (laughs) pregnant. We have so much work to do. And it was not my finest hour, right? Not my proudest moment. At the time, I had a two-year-old. I have two boys. And I had worked through, you know, pregnancy and taken maternity leave. I had had the privilege of paid maternity leave, which is something we offer at Franklin Covey. And it's it was a good example. And the reason I shared it is because sometimes 
our biases are in direct contradiction with our stated values, right? As a working mother, I mean, I literally vote and sign petitions and read articles about how we need to have longer uh, paid parental leave in this country. And I feel strongly about that. I have clients in Europe who are always appalled, right? At our, <laughs> at our three month maternity leave. And that those are my values. And that is what I sort of advocate for and, and what I believe in. And yet in that moment, my bias was focused on sort of the work that I needed to be done and a sense of inconvenience. Mm. And if we think about that performance model, you know, my next reaction to her would very easily put her in the high performance limited or damaging zone and really thinking about the life of her pregnancy and the joy of welcoming a child and then going out on maternity leave. I mean, how her supervisor responded to all of that has such an impact in her ability to perform. And so it was an important sort of smack in the face for me Mm. to think about what that meant for her and me and our working relationship moving forward forward. Well, I want to move uh, now from the performance model to uh, what is essentially the structure of the book. And we've touched on some of this, and that is the uh, the bias progress model. Um, what do we need to understand, Pamela, about part one, identify bias? As we think about our ability to identify bias, it is really about the heavy work of introspection and building our own self-awareness, mm. right? And so I think self-awareness, it's sort of like emotional intelligence. It's overused. People mm. say, like, I know what that is. I've got it. I've got it in spades. <laughs> and then you talk to people and you're like, I don't know that you fully know what that means mm. <laughs> to be self-aware, <laughs> right? Um, it is it is, a, it is an intellectual pursuit. It's hard. And so as we think about our our ability to build this muscle of self-awareness and recognize the impact, the true impact of our biases and, and that we have these biases that are navigating our thinking. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to think about our own identity. And so we talk about the origin stories of our bias. So I do have two boys. My life is governed by superheroes and superheroes <laughs> have origin stories mm-hmm. as do our biases, right? I have a very strong feeling about work ethic and a sort of rigid definition about that. And I'm a first generation American. And so that that definition really comes from my experience with my parents and how I was raised. They sort of, you know, we have a, they came here with nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And they built this life for us. And that flies in the face of work-life balance quite often (laughs) and the things that um, millennials and younger employees are demanding of us, the thing that all of our employees need in this moment when our personal and professional lives have smashed together as we've been sent home for COVID. So I think it's important to recognize that, right? And when we have these visceral feelings that that comes from something in us, I have a colleague, I talk about this in the book, I have a colleague who every time she describes someone as ambitious, particularly a woman, she whispers it like it's a four letter word. So so it's was very ambitious where, you know, and and there's an origin story to that. Whereas Mm. I really value ambition. I look for it. I think it's positive. I I identify as ambitious myself and I Mm. think that's good. And so examining these sort of origin stories and building a real sort of mindfulness practice to be able to to recognize when we have those feelings and where they might come from. Doing that examination is really critical, as well as really understanding the neuroscience and what's happening in our brain, that when we are under duress, when we feel extra pressure to act quickly, when we feel overwhelmed, that we are more susceptible to lean into our biased thinking. Well, uh, part two of uh, the framework, Pamela says, is cultivate 
connection. Pamela, talk about how this relates to, say, empathy and, and curiosity. Yeah, it's really the dual balance of empathy and curiosity that some of us are naturally more empathic. We feel other people's feelings. It's easy for us to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And some of us are naturally more curious, right? We ask critical questions. We listen for the answers. We're always sort of investigating and inquiring. Hmm. And this balance of the two is our goal, that really empathy and curiosity are two sides of the same coin. They are the sort of interpersonal and intellectual pursuit of connection. And we don't always take the time to do that, right? So sometimes you think about, um, you know, do more with less and inefficient culture and Zoom fatigue. And we don't take the time to really connect and understand what is motivating our colleagues or our stakeholders. What are they most worried about? What are they most excited about? And understanding that sort of core of people ensures that we are operating from a place of fact versus making assumptions about why someone was late to a meeting or how they contribute in meetings or where their ideas lie or where their energy comes from, right? Mm -hmm. Um, in the absence of information, our brain creates a story. And these are the cognitive shortcuts that we lean into. But if we can take some time to build meaningful connection, mm. we can better understand people's perspective. And we're then operating off of those facts versus mm. just what we might assume. Well, the third part then is, as we work through this, choose courage. And I don't know about you, but when I think of, of courage, I often think of, of big and, and bold actions. But you, you say it's more than that, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we think of courage as like throwing elbows and causing ruckus, right? And it's, it is always bold. And, and we talk in the book about a sort of a spectrum of courage from careful to bold, that there is a reality to when you have formal or informal authority or power, and you can be more bold in your courage. And there are other circumstances when you don't have that authority, you're more at risk, frankly, right? You, you're a subordinate in a circumstance, or you feel like you're on the receiving end of bias. And, and and the reality of that spectrum is that, you know, at, we talk about some strategies, depending on where you are in that spectrum, that you can pull on based on the circumstance in which you find yourself. And so we present this sort of four part framework for thinking about courage, that it takes courage to identify when we ha are biased, when we have biases that have other people potentially in the limiting or damaging zone, recognizing that I had a visceral negative reaction to this new employee because mm. she was expecting is not my finest hour, right? Mm. It takes vulnerability to recognize that we have a problematic belief or that we have an inhibiting or limiting belief. We then talk about the courage to cope with bias, that being on the receiving end of bias does real harm to your overall sense of well-being. There's some research mm. around the emotional tax of that, that it there's a cost in terms of your energy and ability to perform. And so in cer those circumstances, we do need to be more careful and really look inward to build our ability to cope with bias and, and be proactive in what happens next for us. We then talk about the courage to be an ally, that throwing myself in the fray of something that doesn't impact me directly takes great courage. And how do I do that in a way that doesn't overtake another voice, but actually lends my power? And finally, we talk about the courage to advocate that mm. when you are in a position of formal authority, 
when you're in a leadership position, you can advocate for change. You can identify challenges, systemic challenges, right? And bring them up. You can change processes. You can ask bold questions. And so recognizing when you are in that position and really leveraging that to make change in an organization can be quite powerful. Now, then the final stage is applying these three over a long period of time, right? Yeah. So when you think about what this means in an organizational context, um, we talk about what we call the talent life cycle, which is really all the decision points across a person's career, how they come into an organization, what we do with them once they're in the organization, how they move up or um, and are promoted through an organization or what their long term career looks like. And recognizing that in those processes, we can identify bias, we can cultivate connection, we can choose courage to really make impact in the larger sort of demographics and inclusive culture and experience in an organization. Um, Well, before I address some questions not directly related to your book, Pamela, anything else from the book that you want to make sure that we know about or or walk away with? I think the structure of the book is really powerful. So the idea is that as a leader and as a reader, you could open it up and really Mm -hmm. engage in a conversation. So at the end of each chapter, there's some application and reflection tools, both for individual contributors and for leaders. And I've just gotten really incredible feedback on those tools that when people use those to have conversations with their friends and family and colleagues, when they actually take the time to sort of complete them and workshop the book, if you will, Mm. that that has been time well spent. Well, you and your co-authors cite uh, quite a few books in your book, and I have found that my favorite authors themselves do quite a bit of reading. Uh, Give us a bit of insight, Pamela, into your history with regard to uh, reading and, and the impact that books have had on your life. How has the habit of reading, say, consistently and intentionally played a role in in your success? I have always been an avid reader. And I think one of the things that I have found so powerful. So so my family is from the Dominican Republic and early in my sort of reading life, my house was always full of books. My dad would buy me books that had women of color and Caribbean women and Mm. women from the Dominican Republic as the protagonist, as a central figure in the book, which was so different than the books we were reading in school. Mm. And so I've always just felt that there's always been so much power in that sort of like escapism and seeing yourself reflected in something as important as a book, Mm. right? And so I've always found a lot of joy in that and and sort of a lot of understanding. And I I think even as a writer, I I have a a good friend who's a writer. Her name is Elizabeth Acevedo, and she writes young adult books. And she's also of Dominican descent. And she said, when I'm stuck on writing, I read more. Mm. Um, And so I think reading has always just helped me understand the world and helped get my brain turning on on sort of what's next for me. And as you can see in what we cite in the book, the things I've read have very much influenced my thinking on this Mm, topic. For sure. Well, this may be a tough question to answer, but is there a book or two over the course of your career that sticks out as having left a a pretty strong impression on you? Maybe uh, uh, there are books that you go back to from time to time. Yeah, I I think I am really influenced by the work of Dolly Chug. She's written a book called The Person You Mean to Be. Mm. 
And it's about bias, but really about the ethical and sort of moral approach to bias that we do feel, you know, we spend so much time and energy defending our ethics, defending Mm. our goodness, that it stops us from getting better. Mm. Um, And so I've been really influenced by her work. I'm currently reading, I really do like sort of sci-fi and fantasy. And so I just finished, uh, there's a series by Tommy Allende called uh, Children of Blood and Bone. Mm. And... I think it just offers such an interesting comment on the world. So I I think that's the power of fantasy to sort of offer comment on the world is really powerful. And then, of course, I'm very influenced by the seven habits of highly effective people, which is the sort of core of what we do at Franklin Covey or our, Mm. our beginnings, if you will. And just this idea, it aligns well with my work on bias that we have to first work on ourselves before we can influence others. So really thinking about the work that we need to do internally and building, you know, self-awareness and compassion and empathy and, and mm-hmm. radical curiosity before we think about how we're engaging with other people, leading and influencing other people. Last year, I was privileged to have uh, Stephen Mark Covey on the show to talk about the 30th anniversary edition of that book. Love, love, love that book. Well, uh, what's ahead for you as you look forward to 2021 and think about uh, the things that you and your team is working on? What's got you excited? I'm excited about the evolution of this talent lifecycle discussion and the sort of strategic thoughts that organizations are having about how they build not just diversity, but also equity and inclusion across their organizations. Mm. So I do so much sort of coaching of executive teams and talking to executives and really moving from insight to action Mm. at a strategic level in organizations is really interesting. Yeah. I think there's also the question of how short people's memories and attention are. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right. (laughs) Um, You know, racial injustice was such an important topic for a few months. Mm. And so the question is always lingering, you know, was it a moment or is it a movement? Right. And will organizations, you know, as the world opens up, I think there, I think there's, I've already seen sort of a a pendulum swing, more of a focus on, you know, resiliency and the future of work and ways of working and and what this means for our organization in terms of whether we go back to physical working or we stick with virtual working. And I think that looking at everything through the lens of equity and inclusion is really important. Is like, as we think about the future of work, are we thinking about the future of work for parents who are now 10 months in to virtual school with their kids, right? Are we thinking about the future of work through the lens of people who may have, you know, people of color have been disproportionately impacted by COVID and by the economy. Mm. And so are we thinking about our employees of color who may have large financial responsibilities because more of their family is sort of counting on them, right? Mm. Are, Are we thinking about what it means globally that people can sort of live anywhere and work for anyone, right? <laughs> um, because we've all moved virtual. So so I think I'm excited about what people are focused on and always pushing on that question. Are we, are we also asking these questions through the lens of equity and inclusion? Are we ensuring that we're building a future that works for everyone? Mm, well said. Well, the book again is called The Leader's Guide to Unconscious bias, how to reframe bias, cultivate connection, and create high-performing teams. Co-written with Mark Murphy and Ann Chow. Her name is Pamela Fuller. Pamela, thank you again so much for being a part of the Read to Lead podcast. We loved having you here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been my pleasure. 
If you'd like to connect with Pamela online, dig into those books she recommended and any of the other resources we talked about, you can go to the page on my website that's dedicated to this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 357 for episode 357. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash and then the number's 357. Remember, too, that my book is available for pre-order right now on Amazon. You can go to amazon.com and search Read to Lead or go directly to it by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. Next time on the show, I'm going to welcome ex-NFL linebacker and former Disney executive Reggie Williams. We'll be chatting about his book, Resilient by Nature, Reflections from a Life of Winning on and Off the Football Field. And we'll follow Reggie's visit with a chat with Mitzi Perdue, who's a businesswoman in her own right. She's also the daughter of one family business titan. Her father founded the Sheraton Hotel chain and the widow of another. Her late husband was Frank Perdue of Purdue Chicken. We'll chat with her on how to make your family business last across generations. And we'll also talk about tips for success from mega successful people. That rounds out February. Rest assured that we've already got some great authors and books lined up for March and April as well coming your way. Well, that'll do it for this episode. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.